2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For the past couple of years, KQED's Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari have been tracking the saga of evictions in the Bay Area in the context of the pandemic's catastrophic effects on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Now, the new season of their podcast, Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America, is rolling out, backed by all of that reporting. The story they tell about evictions here may not be the one you expect. It's centered in the industrial suburbs where an increasing number of evictions are happening and without the protections and social institutions of our big cities. This is an important series, and I hope you'll stay with us as we talk with them for the next hour after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Evictions are cataclysmic for the people who experience them. They leave a mark on people's lives and rental histories that can take years to recover from if it's possible at all. When the pandemic hit in March of 2020, whole sectors of the service economy ground to a halt. Through no fault of their own, many people were left without any income, which meant no money to pay the bills. The CDC, as well as states and cities, took action to halt evictions, but the moratoria have been an imperfect vehicle for protecting people from being tossed from their homes, especially out in the suburbs where many black and Latin renters have been pushed by rising housing prices in the central cities of our region. Here to tell us that story are Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari, reporters covering housing affordability for KQED and the co-hosts of KQED's podcast Sold Out. Welcome to the show.
3: Hi! Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us here
2: today. Aaron, can you tell us why you begin this story in Antioch, out there by Highway Four in Contra Costa County?
3: Sure. You know, I think we were gathering data on who was not being protected by these eviction protections. Um, I think when you know this, the state and uh, passed an eviction moratorium. A lot of people assumed that everyone would just be protected, but we had heard anecdotally that a lot of people were slipping through those cracks. And so we gathered data on sheriff lockouts—basically, any time that sheriffs were called to show up to uh, mm-hmm. enforce an eviction—and um, we saw that, uh, you know, it wasn't big cities like you said that we were seeing the most evictions. It was places like Santa Rosa, um, outlying parts of San Jose, um, and Antioch. Antioch showed up as the city with the highest eviction rate during the pandemic, 22 times higher than Oakland. Um, and so, you know, we, we chose to start there um, because of that high eviction rate and also a little bit because of what we knew about the city.
2: Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to note for people that when you're looking at sheriff lockouts, that's kind of like a subset of people who've been forced from their homes, right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, it represents really the smallest portion of people evicted from their homes because so many people leave before... The sheriff show up and um, the process, you know, the way the process is laid out, um, it could be a a couple a week or a couple months before an eviction plays out in courts. And a lot of people, most people leave before that happens.
1: Exactly. And I think I just wanted to jump in and say that, you know, what we're looking at, too, like Aaron was saying, was just a real small piece of the pie when it comes to evictions, because, you know, A lot of the court ordered evictions that we see, you know, when they're filed, when they go through the courtrooms, we can't see a lot of that in California. California is actually a really difficult place to analyze eviction data because we have a lot of laws that protect and mask the identities of people that are evicted. And so, you know, a lot of that is for good things that it doesn't, you know, leave a mark on your record. And these were laws that were passed 2017 and have been on the books for a couple of years now. So it's been really hard to actually like understand the scale of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so for us, that's why we we started to look at sheriff lockouts. But, you know, like Aaron was saying, that's just a small piece, you know, that doesn't include people who, you know, maybe their landlord pays them to leave or the landlord changes the locks um, or, you know, takes out the whole door.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, if we go back in time to like why Antioch became this hotbed for sheriff lockouts. We kind of have to go to the housing crisis, don't we? And sort of rising housing prices during the nineties and two thousands and then the subsequent bust.
3: Yeah. I mean, really it, it starts. I mean, when we think about Antioch, Antioch was a very uh, white working class, um, not even a suburb. I mean, it, had, it had industry of its own. um, And uh, there was a big housing boom out there in the 90s. We we saw a lot of Black and brown families moving out there to buy their first home or maybe to move into a bigger home because it was a a pretty affordable place to buy a house. Um, But then, you know, it was really hit hard by the 2008 foreclosure crisis and the subsequent Great Recession. And a lot of the people who lost their homes were those Black and brown families who had moved out there, um, who were sort of preyed upon with subprime mortgages and and loans with really uh, bad terms that made it really hard for for people to pay them back, uh, especially amid the recession in 2008. And so lots of those homes were bought by investors, not new owner-occupants. And we saw this shift, um, you know, from being a really homeowning community to being a renter community. Um, And then, you know, of course, what happened, you know, I think there's some important context regionally in the sense that after the Great Recession, As you said, you know, prices were rising in San Francisco and Oakland and other central cities in the Bay Area. And we saw that a lot of the people who were moving to Antioch, um, you know, they were getting pushed out there because of rising rents uh, elsewhere in the Bay Area. Uh, Maybe they were evicted. Maybe they were just priced out. But Antioch was still a pretty affordable place. And now, of course, you know, flash forward um, almost 10 years later and and rents are rising. And certainly during the pandemic, we saw a huge demand for single family homes um, and, you know, not not only to rent, but, you know, for sale. And so we saw a lot of evictions that were related to to um, landlords selling their homes or deciding that they no longer wanted to rent it um, or even to take it off the rental market completely. But, you know, I think it's really reflective of, of a lot of trends that we're seeing, not just in Antioch, but also nationally. We see this in suburbs, you know, across the country.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, Molly, there, these suburban cities are also quite different politically. You know, Oakland, for example, has a, a long tradition of a kind of left-leaning city council that well, at least nominally wants to uh, protect renters in the city. What did you you find out in Antioch when you started to look at sort of the political and social institutions that renters might uh, go to for help?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's really interesting because there's just like a real vast difference in terms of tenant activism and even just like resources that are available out in, you know, like the outerlying parts of the Bay area out in, you know, more suburbs, like, like Antioch, you know, they don't have that infrastructure that a place that's really had like decades of tenant activism, you know, like San Francisco, like Oakland, like you said. So, you know, even in terms of like getting an attorney if you face an eviction. There's like, you know, really one legal aid service out in Antioch. And so I think that people that live out there just don't have access to um, a lot of help if they are getting evicted, but even just like tenant education, knowing what your rights are. And then when we look at, you know, in terms of the laws that are in place, you know, even just with the pandemic and the moratoriums that passed. Oakland passed one of the strongest eviction moratoriums, essentially taking eviction off the table for non-payment of rent during the pandemic. And it continues as long as there's an emergency going on. Uh, Antioch didn't pass those kind of laws and they didn't have their own eviction laws, you know, that went further than what the state passed. And so I think you also saw, you know, populations, people that were getting pushed out to Antioch, uh, you know, that were being displaced out there contributing to, you know, a suburbs today that is increasingly higher in poverty. It's where a lot of our regions, people of color live communities of color that have been pushed out there. So I think what we saw was just a really interesting nexus point here where, you know, this was a place that people were getting pushed to, and it was also a place that really lacked a lot of the resources and help that they needed in terms of rent assistance and tenant support.
2: Yeah. You know, Molly, let's stick with you. Could you give us the broad strokes update on sort of where we stand with eviction moratoria and, and bans? I mean, I know that it's like incredibly fluid and there's also a lot of different ones in different places in the Bay, but just sort of as a, as a general rule, where are we in that?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, like we've said a lot on our podcast and probably on forum, a lot of that depends on where you live. Um, but basically, you know, the the larger state protections that passed uh, the moratorium has expired in some way. There are some protections that are still in place, but, you know, there there's basically a clause that expires next month. So in March that says you can't get evicted for non-payment of rent. Uh, if you're still waiting on that federal rent relief that went through mm-hmm. and I'm talking about the five, you know, over five billion dollars uh, that went to the state of California, basically to, to give money to people that lost their jobs or lost income during the pandemic to ensure that they were still able to stay housed. So if you've applied for rent relief, um, then you should not be able to be evicted in this moment if you're still waiting on those checks to come through.
2: Uh, Aaron, let's go to you. You know, for the past decade, it seems like there's been more and more research about what eviction does to people who experience it. Can you tell us just a little bit about some of the lasting negative effects of an eviction?
3: Sure. You know, um, I mean, I think the first impact that people feel is really related to health. It's it's elevated levels of stress. um, It's depression. Um, you know, family, you know, adults are, are interrupted from their networks. It can um, cause job losses. Um, So when you're looking for a place to live and um, you're struggling to, to, uh, you know, maybe you're moving and you're trying to hold down a job, it can be very hard to keep that job. Children are, you know, separated from their schools and that can cause long-term learning loss. Um, People often move into uh, housing that is not as good as the type of housing that they left. So you're moving into worse housing conditions, worse neighborhoods that can lead to worse outcomes later on in life, whether it's because you're seeing higher elevated of crime in your neighborhood that you moved into more poverty, worse housing conditions in terms of the physical um, house, uh, you know, maybe there's more mold or um, the the plumbing's not working as well or, or, um, things of that nature. So we, we see that, you know, when people it's very disruptive in people's lives. Um, and and we saw this, you know, firsthand in a lot of the people that we spoke to, um, you know, including one woman we, we spoke to for the first episode, Carmen Ponce, who, you know, had to take anti-anxiety medication because she was so stressed out from having to, Think about where her, where she and her daughter and her granddaughter were going to live, um, and Molly spent you know a year and a half following one woman and her son uh, after they were evicted, and Molly, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about Jean's story, but it um, really illustrated a lot of the consequences that we see. That is backed up, uh, also, I should say, by a lot of data too. That shows us that uh, these are very common. Uh, reactions to being evicted
2: yeah molly i think we're going to talk about uh gene kendrick and her son stanley after the break um in the meantime we would love to hear from listeners have you or someone you know experienced eviction and you know during the pandemic or otherwise in the past how would you navigate that you can give us a call 866-733-6786 that's 866 866-733- 733 6786. You can get touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. We're talking about the new season of KQED's podcast, Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America, which examines the rise in evictions during the pandemic. We're joined by Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari, who are co hosts of the podcast and report on housing affordability here at KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for
0: more after the break.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new season of KQED's podcast, Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America, which examines the rise in evictions during the pandemic. We're joined by Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporters at KQED and co hosts of Sold Out. And we want to hear from you too. Have you or someone you know experienced eviction during the pandemic or otherwise in the past? And if you did, how'd you navigate? the after effects of the eviction. Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, were KQED Forum. Uh Molly and Aaron, before the break, we were talking about one of the key characters that tell this eviction story in the podcast. And... Erin, maybe you could take us, just tell us a little bit of Jean Kendrick and her son Stanley's story.
3: Uh, Molly, why don't you take this one? You'd spent the most time with her.
1: Sure. Yeah. So,
3: you know, we spent, uh, we actually met Jean Kendrick.
1: She uh, is 71. She was living in Richmond, California with her adult son, Stanley. He's in his 40s. Um, Stanley's also disabled. He uh, was in a really uh, terrible car accident when he was 19. Um, and he actually lost you know, the ability to, to walk on his own. He has to use a power wheelchair. Um, and, and we met them when they were actually being evicted back at the end of uh, 2020, um, during that you know first winter surge of the pandemic. And we'd been calling tenant attorneys to, to hear from people who were facing eviction in that moment. And, uh, one of us got in touch with me, I got in touch with Jean and Stanley. Um, and so they were actually living in a Richmond public housing when they were evicted just like a week or so before the Christmas holiday. Uh, and, you know, I think their story is really emblematic of what a lot of people experience who are going through an eviction, uh, just in that they really had nowhere to go. Uh, mm-hmm. So they ended up, you know, at a motel nearby, an extended stay by the Hilltop Mall up in Richmond and uh, essentially kind of moved in thinking this was just going to be a temporary thing for them to get off their feet, you know, and they put their stuff in storage, paid for that and essentially ended up staying at this hotel for the next year and a half oh my uh, gosh. because it's just been so incredibly difficult to find housing that they can afford in this market. Uh, and also now they've got a mark on their record. So this is just another um, you know, barrier in their way to getting new housing.
2: Yeah. You know, there's another way that Jean Kendrick's story seems emblematic of this problem, which is just that she experienced some of the predatory lending that sort of precipitated this crisis, you know, back in the aughts.
1: Exactly. You know, teens African-American
2: and she, you know, is also
1: part of a disproportionate group that faces evictions at a much higher rate. It's something that we saw in the data that we looked at when we started to collect Sheriff Lockout. I mean, it was really stark. You could see, you know, we, we ended up analyzing this data with a group of researchers at UC Berkeley at Urban Displacement Project. Um, and from, you know, the addresses and the names that we collected of all of the um, eviction information, they were able to analyze and see, you know, what the race was and, and to see what, how, you know, starkly different the rates of eviction were depending on the color of your skin. And we saw that, you know, Black families, Black households were getting evicted at two, sometimes even three times the rate of white households, mm-hmm. um, particularly in Contra Costa County, which is where and Stanley lived. Um, it was about double the rate. And so, you know, I think that is connected to, you know, a really long history that we can talk about when it comes down to, you know, racial inequality, this country and housing.
2: I mean, is that just straight up racism, like in the sense that people are less likely to give people the benefit of the doubt or extend a break because some of these eviction negotiations are really quite complicated and go on for quite some time?
3: I think there's two sort of two answers to that. There is, yes, to, to your, to your question, there is data looking at sort of landlord behavior and how willing they are to negotiate with different tenants uh, based on their race. And the data does show that um, landlords typically don't extend those breaks as often or as generously to black tenants. But really, when you, you know, look at Jean's story and um, you know this is part of a, a long legacy of racist housing policies in this country that you know, date back to slavery, but in sort of more modern times, date back to the 1930s and redlining, when you know the government um, refused to back loans to um, people living in neighborhoods where there are any black residents, um, and so this kind of set up a situation where black families were unable to build that generational wealth, and and when they, you know were able to buy homes. It was often, um, you know, through really in in really predatory conditions in terms of loans that had, um, steep interest rates where houses could be quickly repossessed with just one missed payment. Um, black people, you know, in the middle part of the last century were often forced to live in very substandard housing in, um, central cities, Um, but yet the rents were not that much lower. So, you know, you would see people paying rents that were comparable to what white families were paying out in the suburbs or in in nicer neighborhoods in the city. Um, And yet, uh, you know, many of the homes, uh, you know, lacked a lot of basic amenities like, you know, a floor or uh, working plumbing. Um, People were literally worried about rats killing infants in their sleep because, uh, you know, the the houses were so shoddy and, you know, when black people were able to own their own homes and buy them outright, um, even in neighborhoods that are considered very desirable today, like, you know, West Oakland, they continued to be devalued. Um, you know, there was a recent story out of Marin County, a black owned home appraised nearly higher when they had a white friend pose as the homeowner. Uh, That's the subject of a lawsuit, uh, a recent lawsuit, but, you know, that's generational wealth that would have been lost uh, had this couple not fought back. Um, And this is not just one-off stories. Uh, Andre Perry as a researcher at the Brookings Institution and author of a book that looked at this question, you know, he estimates this is about $150 billion nationally that Black families are losing because of, you know, devaluation of homes that otherwise would fetch a much higher price with a white homeowner. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, all of this sort of leads up to the conditions that we saw during the Great Recession when because of this lack of um, being able to build that generational wealth and the continued, uh, you know, pressure that that's had. Black borrowers were steered into these subprime loans with balloon payments and adjustable interest rates and other unfavorable lending terms, often because they couldn't get better loans um, from from banks uh, for no other reason than because of having you know not having built the sort of equity uh, to show themselves as a more credible lender. Um, but really, as a result of all of these things that we've seen historically over the past you know century. Um, mm-hmm.
2: No, that was a, a beautiful encapsulation of a really tragic set of circumstances, you know, from separate and unequal housing markets to what Kianga Yamada-Taylor calls predatory inclusion. And we end up here uh, with evictions rising among the very populations most affected by those, those policies that you know began the 20th century and, and continued. I want to play a cut of Jean Kendrick just talking about the connection between those sort of factors and her health.
4: My doctor's checking me because my blood pressure's high again. And so it's a stress level. Like I keep telling people, I've never had to go through this before. And not knowing which avenues to take in the ins and outs, it's, it's hard. Not even my worst enemy, I wouldn't wish
2: this on. Yeah. I mean, this idea... Aaron, of not knowing which path to take seems like a very difficult thing because you're, you're tossed out on the street. You have a very difficult time finding another rental home. Like how do people figure out what steps to take next?
3: Oh, I mean, I wish, I wish I had a better answer for that. I mean, I, I cannot imagine myself. um, I mean, I, I can't imagine myself in that situation and I know how difficult uh, it would be, I mean, a couple of years ago I had to move pretty suddenly. Um, and I had a had two weeks to, you know, to find a new place to live. And, you know, it was a full-time job just trying to find another rental. Um, and that, you know, and I I didn't have an eviction on my record. And, you know, I'm white and I'm fairly privileged, you know. So um, so you know, I, I know that the barriers are incredibly stark. And I think Gene really really said it all when, you know, it just, it's very difficult to know which paths to take. I mean, um, there are obviously organizations out there that, uh, you know, are trying to help renters, um, the Action Defense Center in Oakland, um, Casa Justa, um, ACE, uh, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, um, and others out there, um, but they can be really, you know, I mean, unless you know about them um, or or think to even uh, look for them, um, you know, most people, I think, are just thinking about what they're going to do tomorrow and, and how to, you know, looking for places um, to, you know, to, to live. Um, so I think, you know, Jean's, re- you know, response of going to an extended stay motel is pretty um, logical. I mean, it was you know, it's, it's a, it was a place where she knew she could get housed very quickly, although it was very expensive to live there. Uh, So, I mean, it's, it's incredibly um, daunting. You know, another person that we spoke to, uh, I think I mentioned Carmen Ponce earlier, she was getting evicted and had just so happened to get a call from a tenant organizer before she was about to move out. And, that's how she heard that, you know, she was still protected under the eviction moratorium. Whereas, you know, I think most people uh, wouldn't get that call and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't know about those protections. Right. Just you know, to, I mean,
1: Jean's story is is really connected to, you know, some of the, the history that we talk about. I mean, that's part of how she got caught up in being a renter in the first place. You know, we talk about it in episode two, but, you know, Jean says, in the cut just now, like, she's never had to go through this. She doesn't know where to go. She doesn't know who to turn to, um, you know, because for most of her life, she was a homeowner. And, you know, we learned in talking to her that she had a home, you know, a beautiful home up in the Oakland Hills. And um, she ended up losing that, like, you know, a lot of Black families because of the subprime mortgage crisis and and that history that Erin walked us through. It, and, you know, she ended up having one of those loans. She got talked into taking out an adjustable rate loan and you know just before the housing bust you know her her payments just tripled like they went from about $1,000 a month to, to over 3,000 like far out of reach you know from something that she could afford uh, and she ended up losing that house and that you know really i think just sort of catapulted her down this road of, of, of worse and worse housing and just being more housing insecure and, and, and sort of tied to, to the market and, and how high rent prices are. Especially for her, you know, she's retired now. She spent 30 years as a nurse um, taking care of other people and, and now takes care of her son as his live-in caregiver. And so I think, you know, she's, you know, she's somebody who is living on a fixed income, you know, living on Stanley's disability payments and is just feeling trapped by, you know, basically looking at what's available to her and really just spends most of her time signing up for different waiting lists that pop up for, you know, the few affordable housing that does open up or, you know, and and not just here in the Bay Area, she's applying to places in like Washington state, Um, she's looking at Georgia, like really like anywhere Mm -hmm. that they could find an affordable place.
2: I want to bring in our first caller, Carrie from San Jose. Welcome to the show, Carrie.
5: Good morning. I just saw an alarming statistic in the Huffington Post that said that median rents in the fifty major, um, largest major metropolitan areas in the country went up over nineteen percent just in the past year, which obviously doesn't bode well for foreclosures. Uh, not foreclosures. I'm sorry for evictions and for um, community stability. And it seems to make the case for rent controls. And I was wondering if your guests could comment on that statistic.
2: Yeah. Molly, you want to take that one?
3: <laughs> I was going to toss it to
2: Aaron. Okay, Aaron, Aaron, <laughs> Aaron, let's have you do uh, sure.
3: it. I can take it. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so a little bit of a caveat, a little bit of context for that stat. We did see that in places like San Francisco, New York, some other really hot housing markets, that rents fell very significantly at the very outset of the Uh, you know, it's sort of in the first year of the pandemic and have risen very sharply since then. So part of um, what the caller, uh, the statistic that the caller mentioned might be a little bit of a rebound. So we'd have to look back a couple more years to see how that fits in with sort of the historical trends. But, you know, what we have seen during the pandemic is that um, rents have actually been rising most sharply in uh, sort of suburban and rural areas, Um, you know, in Antioch, where we focus our first episode, rents rose 26%. Um, In Fresno, where another city that we looked at, it was a similar story, 26% increase uh, uh, during the pandemic. And so that, to me, um, as as stark as it is to see that those rent um, increases in cities, um, you know, the suburbs, these more rural areas have historically been, well, You know, in in sort of the last um, decade, they've been places where people have have fled to because the prices were lower than in, you know, these sort of hot hot market cities. And so that's where we've seen. lower income people moving, they've sort of been pushed further and further away from the urban cores in search of any, you know, housing, you know, they can afford. And that's what concerns me the most, because um, that's where we're seeing kind of a a rise in uh, folks who are more, you know, working class people who are moving out there in search of affordable housing. So, you know, that um, is startling and not to put any more doom and gloom, but you know, we've seen a lot of investor activity during the pandemic, especially in this past year with investors having a banner year, scooping up, um, lots of properties and, um, you know, um, that, uh, does not bode well for, for renters who might be looking for more stable rents in the future. Yeah.
1: So combine that with, you know, these are places like, uh, that don't necessarily have those high paying tech jobs that we see, you know, in like the urban core here in the Bay Area. You know, it's, it's a lot of people that either have to commute in to go to work um, or, you know, are left with a lot of more minimum wage jobs. So There's not like the industry that we saw when a lot of these suburbs were first created. Um, and, and I think that the rent control comment is interesting because, you know, we'll probably get to this in, in the later part of this hour, but, you know, the idea of, of capping the rent, um, is something that we're now you know more frequently seeing being talked about in some of these places that are having those really extreme rent increases like Antioch um, like in Fresno um, you know you're seeing more tenants bring forth this idea uh, and, and to, to introduce these kind of policies into, you know, outlying areas, not just places like San Francisco. Um, so I think that it's an interesting conversation that we're starting to see, you know, have more action. I think we're going to see that conversation continue in places beyond just our cities.
2: Hey, Molly, can you just tell us where Jean Kendrick and her son are now and how they're doing just before we go to the break?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I just actually just checked in with Jean yesterday uh, when we, aired the second episode, Um, you know, last we left them when they were in a hotel, you know, and they had actually moved from the extended stay hotel where they were spending like basically $3,000 a month to live in a hotel room together. Um, And it was just depleting all of their savings and and everything that they had saved up looking for a new home. Um, They're now actually at a project room key hotel, which was the hotels that were propped up during the pandemic uh, to house people who are homeless and living on the streets. And so in, in one way, you know, their situation is the same. They're still in a, in a one-room hotel. Uh, but now at least they're able to live there for free. Yeah.
0: We're talking
2: about the new season of KQED's podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, which examines the rise in evictions during the pandemic. You just heard Molly Solomon. We're also joined by Aaron Baldassari, housing affordability reporters at KQED and co-hosts of sold out i'm alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned for more after the break
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new season of KQED's podcast, Sold Out, which focuses on evictions. We're joined by the co-hosts of Sold Out, uh, Aaron Baldassari and Molly Solomon, who are also housing affordability reporters at KQED. And I wanted to bring in Debbie into the show. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. So, Debbie, can you tell us a little bit about your story?
5: Sure. I lost my job because of the pandemic in 2019. I've been living in El Cerrito for six and a half years in the same spot, an ADU, uh, additional dwelling unit on the back of my landlord's property. And I've been receiving pandemic relief and unemployment for a period of time, but I spent most of my savings paying my rent. Um, The eviction moratorium ended... In November and in December, I received notice from my landlord that they won't be renewing my lease come May. So, yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do, you for think, a new place Debbie?
2: To live. Yeah. I'm sorry. What are you going to do?
5: I have been using the networks available to me to put word out that I'm looking for a place, um, doing what I can to find new work. I'm currently working two part-time jobs. I also help take care of somebody who's elderly, so I don't want to expose myself to the public um, Mm. and risk getting infected. So I'm trying to be cautious around that. Um, Taking it one day at a time is is really the best I can do right now. I was really disturbed to learn that ADUs and in-law units and those types of things aren't Covered by the tenant protection laws in California. So evictions can be without cause. So even though my landlords receive their rent either from the state or from me, they can still ask me to leave. Yeah.
2: Thanks for sharing your experience, Debbie, and wish you a lot of luck finding a a new place. I I wanted to bring in uh, Roger's uh, comment, Aaron Baldessari. He asks, how effective or ineffective have state renter support programs been given the kind of uh, loopholes and and small carve-outs that uh, Debbie's mentioning?
3: Yeah, I'm so glad that she called in and shared her experience. I mean, I think that that is something that we are hearing a lot more from uh, tenant uh, advocates, eviction defense attorneys, that, you know, Despite receiving this federal rent relief, landlords are still moving to evict tenants um, because of limitations in those protections. I mean, we do know that during the the you know the, over these past you know two or so years, evictions have been down from their historical averages. Uh, we are seeing those numbers increase, um, and I think that we will only continue to see them increase as the last of these protections um, ex- you know expire at the end of March as Molly had said earlier um, you know Debbie also brought up another good point which is that there are some state uh, tenant protections that were passed oh gosh I want to say in 2019 um, that um, provided a, a sort of rent cap uh, a cap on how much rents can increase. Um, it's it's five percent plus inflation. Um, and so but it didn't apply to all properties. Um, so it, it exempted single family homes, um, except those that are owned by um, landlords that have 10 or more single family homes. Um, and um, it did a couple other things, including um passed sort of a just cause uh, tenant protections, which means that it sort of limits the reasons that landlords can evict a tenant. But again, um, certain properties were exempted from that. Um, And so that leaves a lot of um, people very vulnerable to eviction, especially um, in in suburbs, um, in these places where we've seen this increase in in tenants living.
2: You know, I mean, that's, I think, one of the crucial difficulties of this pandemic period. You know, we've had this public health communal problem, but then the fallout from that has fallen to individual people to try and figure out on their own. What did you find among local communities like Where Are people beginning to organize into, you know, tenant unions or things that have long been a part of kind of big city politics?
3: Absolutely. You know, we're seeing as more people move to the suburbs, tenant organizing is moving out there. So, you know, uh, during the pandemic, um, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, ACE, began organizing out in Antioch um, to organize tenants. We see this in Santa Rosa, in the South Bay, in San Pablo, Walnut Creek, Concord. You know, a lot of the, you know, I, I really think that the forefront of the battle for tenants' rights is going to be out in these sort of suburban and more rural areas, Uh, But, you know, again, in Antioch, we saw that um, organizers out there actually helped sort of campaign for a city councilwoman, uh, Tamisha Torres-Walker, who was elected in 2020. Um, Now, Antioch is considering some of these, you know, is considering closing some of the loopholes that would protect people uh, like Debbie, you know, if she was living in Antioch. Um, I'm talking about just cause tenant protections. sort of an additional rent cap or, or sort of uh, limiting the amount that tenants can pay in rent um, and an um, anti-harassment ordinance, which would protect tenants from um, landlords that are misbehaving, I should say, um, and, and doing illegal things to try to force tenants out.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, and so it's been really exciting to see some of that movement growing, at, you know, in terms of this organizing efforts, pushing to places that hadn't seen them before.
2: And we actually have a cut of uh, Antioch City Council member Tamisha Torres-Walker. It's actually cut three. Uh, let's listen in.
1: People are organizing. There are people who are organizing themselves because they're starting to see that they need to create a voice um, from the ground. And I, and I think that that's the greatest change any community can see is people building community. Yeah.
2: want to bring in another caller, uh, Nancy from Antioch. Welcome, Nancy.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, I actually live in Antioch and we own a home that we rent and we've been very fortunate in that our tenants have been able to, uh, we've been able to maintain a good relationship. They pay their rent. Um, there was once they
4: needed to be delayed for a little bit, but we worked it out. But my question is, what about people that own
5: second homes and rent them out? Um, what about the mortgages they pay on those homes? And are we going to have a discussion about that? Or are we not including landlord
0: rights
2: as well. And we also have a, a comment from Gary. I've gotten a few like this. You know, no one will contest the fact they are bad landlords, but maybe you should do a show on all the tenants who exploited the no eviction rule during the pandemic, the money landlords lost or, or places damaged. And obviously their landlords have a perspective on this as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that there are, you, you know, the about half of all landlords are own you know, fewer than ten housing units are sort of sort of called mom and pop landlords, and they represent uh, a lot of tenants. You know, they they house a lot of uh, renters across this country, and we did see that. You know, it was these smaller landlords who were sort of most vulnerable to losing. You know, to who were most vulnerable in terms of you know not having a lot of cash reserves to be able to withstand months and months of the eviction moratorium if they weren't receiving rent the federal government passed 50 billion dollars in rent relief that money goes directly to landlords um so if there are landlords out there who have tenants who were struggling to pay back rent during the pandemic they should apply to that Um, and you know the federal government was also very quick to pass mortgage forbearance um, so allowing Uh, Mortgage holders to delay their payments if um, they weren't receiving rent from their tenants. And so we have seen foreclosures at historic lows during the pandemic. Um, There's some speculation about whether that will begin to increase as forbearance periods end. But um, by and large, you know, some of the data that we've been seeing is that landlords have actually done okay during the pandemic. There was a lot of hand wringing, a lot of fear about. Whether a lot of smaller landlords would be selling their properties, uh, particularly selling them to, you know, sort of institutional investors or large corporate landlords who we know do evict tenants at higher rates um, and are a bit, you know, less forgiving than smaller landlords are when it comes to, you know, a tenant who might be late paying the rent. Um, But we didn't actually see that happening too much. Um, And we, and, you know, um, not for nothing, but we looked for this evidence, you know, I spent um, a couple months, you know, calling around to folks asking realtors, um, brokers, uh, other landlords, organizations that represent landlords, if, if we had evidence that, that smaller landlords were selling their properties due to lost income during the pandemic. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't find evidence of that in in California. Um, uh, And there has been some national research that shows that landlords actually, because they were able to cut back on expenses during the pandemic, they were actually, didn't um, lose money uh, sort of on the whole. Um, They were able to stay in the black as it were. So um, so it does seem that tenants have been the most uh, impacted uh, during this time, even if it is just in the loss of services because of of cutback maintenance. Mm-hmm.
2: Appreciate your uh, perspective, though, Nancy from Antioch. Um, I, you know, I, it keeps coming back for me to the idea that the housing system is pretty broken, particularly here in the Bay Area. You know, we've talked about, you know, the rents are too high, housing prices too high, makes things extremely difficult for all kinds of, uh, of people who are involved in, in the housing system. And James uh, commenter listener who, who wrote in with a comment writes the state is too dependent on property taxes and rental income tax to make the changes that are needed for affordable housing. The free market system can work but it needs regulation not simple rent control but price control based on square footage amenities proximity to transportation and city services shopping etc the matrix would drastically reset the cost of housing and probably cause many landlords to sell inventory of apartments and houses that would then bring real estate prices down. Isn't that the real issue?
3: Um, You know, I spent a lot, we do focus an episode of the podcast on landlords. Actually that one will air next Monday. And I spent a lot of time asking people, you know, should we hate the players or hate the game? (laughs) Um, And I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, we can, we do see that um, different landlords behave differently when it comes to evictions and how sort of, how much they're, they're willing to extract profit from their tenants um, or, you know, a lot of smaller landlords, for instance, are just looking for a steady income. They want tenant stability. That's what their tenants want. They want to be in there for a long time. So they might set their set their rents a little bit lower, you know, be a little bit more forgiving in terms of you know when it when a tenant is late paying um, but at the end of the day, you know there comes a time when your your interest as a landlord might outweigh your interests your tenant's interests as sort of breaking point where you do decide that it is necessary to evict um, you know and and so you know. I don't know that we're ever going to be able to, with a sort of capitalist system, I don't know that we'll ever be able to not have any evictions. Um, I think that, you know, if we really want to not have any evictions, we have to start looking at sort of the the causes for an eviction. So um, a lot of it relates to, you know, most people get evicted for non-payment of rent. And so... We think about poverty, we think about job security, you know, those are things that we can address as a country, whether that's with uh, permanent rent relief programs where people can access very quickly rent relief um, or just making housing more affordable um, in general. And so so those are some of the things that we looked at. Um, in ter- well, of know, course, the in- wealth
2: inequality that and, and income inequality Absolutely. that plays into all this as well. Some people can have many houses and some people can barely afford uh, to, to pay the rent. And, of course, that is a structure of our economy now that's been getting worse and worse. We've had a bunch of shows on that over, uh, yeah. o- over uh-huh. the last few months. Um, right. I want to bring in Alexandria from Santa Rosa.
6: Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I am a senior, and I moved into – I live in Santa Rosa, as you said, and I, and I moved into a senior apartment complex. Um, with the understanding that it was fixed, that my rent would be fixed, because um, many, I would say like 90% of the seniors, of course, are receiving Social Security benefits or retirement. And you had to, in order to move in, you had to disclose uh, what your income was, and there was a cap so that you could move into this place. Um, Unbeknownst to me, they do, in fact, raise the rent, and my rent was raised $100 a month, which is really significant and quite challenging for me. Although I do work, so it was a little easier for me to handle than many of the other seniors that are in the complex. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, drama going on right now in the in the complex because many of these people are like in their 80s, and some are in their 90s, and they. They have a fixed income. There's nothing they can do about it. And if they're evicted, where do they go? It's just horrible. And I thought, uh, here's my question, I thought that in these senior complexes that they're unable to do that. And if they are able to do that, well, clearly they are, where can the seniors go to get this remedy? It's pretty horrifying.
2: I wanted to ask out of that, you know, the, the, about the challenges that our elders really face in housing in, in this market, given that prices keep going up and they've got fixed incomes.
1: I mean, I think that's just, <laughs> I mean, I'm so sorry to hear that from the, the caller that just called in I, Alexandria from Santa Rosa. I, I mean, to me, that speaks to a deeper problem too. I mean, Going back to the affordability and who can afford to live here, especially, I mean, I can't imagine having to look for a new place uh, right now as a 34 year old with a job that's employed. It seems very daunting, you know. Let alone if I was in my 80s and living on a fixed income. Um, I think it just raises a lot of questions and and you know concerns for me because what's at stake there? Are we going to be contributing to You know, the senior homelessness that we see in the streets here, uh, you know, I I agree. I think one hundred dollars. Well, that might not seem like a lot. Some people, I think if you're living on a certain amount of money and you're relying on that and that's not going up every year, uh, those kind of rent increases could be devastating.
2: I wanted to um, play one final cut of Jean Kendrick just describing what she hopes for. We heard about her story, her and her son, Stanley, uh, in the uh, middle of the show.
0: Home means knowing that the rent isn't outrageous and that we have a roof over our head, something that's safe. Yeah, that would be a blessing. I've lived in all kinds of places and like my mansion up on the hill. Uh, <laughs> I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking for something that's comfortable.
2: Yeah. Molly Solomon, if people want to listen to more of these stories from Sold Out, what should they do?
1: Well, you can subscribe now, <laughs> but our podcast, you know, we have a new episode that comes out on Mondays. Uh, you know, this Monday, we're going to have one that really focuses on, on landlords and that relationship with tenants. Um, and you can find it really wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Spotify, Apple podcasts. Uh, and we'd love to hear feedback and, and thoughts on the show.
2: We've been talking about the new season of KQED's podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, which examines the problem of evictions during the pandemic. We've been joined by Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari, who co-host the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Final comment. Chris writes, Inequitable housing is another symptom of a deep fiscal and moral disease in our country. We must require elected officials at all levels to include the human cost to the decisions made for our communities." Eviction legislation is a perfect example of decisions made that put corporations over people. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Marisa Lagos.